Okay, Michael. Uh, so I have um, Michael Badriaki here and I'm Matt Price. And um, we are friends and we have been yeah. for some time now, although we tend to only see each other by the phone or, or by a video. Um, yes. But Michael and I are both uh, people who care deeply about the poor. And we're also people that want to see um, want to see God work mightily in our community and around the world. And um, so, just with the start of that, um, we're we're titling this podcast "Embracing the Margins," and our hope is to just have a dialogue uh, between Michael, who is um, originally from Uganda, and me, who grew up in the Midwest, in a very uh, a culturally non-diverse climate um, and we've both done lots of traveling we've both done a lot of education but what I want to start out with is I just want Michael to introduce himself and, and tell us who he is and where he's coming from so Michael hey Matt uh, I appreciate uh, this opportunity uh, I, I love uh, I'm so fortunate to, to have you as a friend and and uh, know you as a brother as well so thanks for uh bringing us together in this way um it, it's it's so encouraging i uh the story is quite long but i'm going to try and uh, just keep it short here uh, as you as you said i can come to the u.s via uganda and uh, have uh, uh, had a meaningful time here mostly going to school uh, and uh, working and uh, really serving, serving God because that's uh, my, my 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 foundation really for why what causes me to tick what causes me to to move uh, and would like to share more about that later. But uh, yeah, I was uh, born in Kenya, raised in Uganda. Uh, my family, most of my family, still is in Uganda in in Kampala and uh, I still have uh, friends there I'm just uh, as connected uh, in Uganda as uh, as ever before sort of uh, I left but I never departed so I hope that I hope that uh, gives people a little peek into the life of we in the diaspora we're scattered but we're not uh, alone uh, we're scattered but we're not unrooted and I think that that usually is the concept or the misconception is that once you have migrated to another land, they say, "Oh, you're no longer you're no longer Ugandan, or you 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 you've become something else." True to some extent that you have become you have grown, I think, to you because now you understand more, as we say in Uganda, to to travel is to see, and to return is to tell stories. Good. Kutambula kulava, kuda kunyumia. That's in Luganda, but I already translated it into English. And so, <laughs> you know, we, uh, uh, we, we sort of, uh, uh, we, we experience this, you know, robust sense of learning as, as we, we travel. And that's been my case is I, I just have appreciated um, having sort of the best of, of, more than one one context you, you know you referred much to your uh, non-diverse uh sort of reality and you know 
I, I think you've seen more than than what is a, a sort of a monocultural experience for you, because you and your wife are quite well traveled and your kids. Uh, but it it could be that way for very many people. And for me, I I have uh, I have been fortunate to have this exposure and learn more um, around the world as as I've traveled. And looking forward to do more. But we currently are in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where my wife and I live and uh, and daughter, um, and uh, and we work here as well. But we have uh, between my wife and I, we have uh, extensive background in business, education, uh, global health uh, work, um, uh, and uh, you name any kind of church ecclesial related work uh we've done it and continue to do it uh, uh international development uh and we're just passionate about like you said um we're passionate about encouraging people from all walks of life rich not so rich, somewhat rich, poor, and then there's the abjectly poor. But 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 when you but when you have lived in abject poverty, when you have tasted the sting of it, you really want to ask everyone to come and see this level of suffering in life. And and it's not just an obsession with suffering as is suffering is a real thing. It's there whether you're rich or poor. It's just that uh, for the people who are really suffering, uh, it's their it's their whole self, their, their their minds, their body, their soul. And so I I I am convinced, having gone through abject poverty, that um, that that God asks us to remember the poor. Because, oh goodness, it's rough. <laughs> Abject poverty stings so badly. You are afraid. You, you, it, it, it's everything gets you there. Um, of course, I'm sure people. When when you have resources, and, and, and I've also been in that place, it, it, fear and all these things are common to everybody. But but God asks us to remember the poor. That's what that's what He says. And uh, because it's easy to forget the poor. It's 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 just yeah, and it's incongruent with loving God when you forget the poor. And we definitely see that in Scripture as we just read through what Jesus did and in the aftermath um, of the churches. We just see this repeated theme of uh, God asking believers to remember the poor, and believers so quickly looking out for themselves. There are people in general just looking out for themselves and forgetting the poor. Um, yeah. So clearly we have a, a mandate. Um, I, I did want to describe just a little bit of how, how we discovered each other. Um, right. And uh, so, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah so, so by profession, I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer. Right. Um, but I, I quit the professional law for several years to do missions work. And right. so part of the process that I have been through is, moving from a very Western view and mindset to something that is 
probably more non-traditional in the way I view things, at least for right. contemporaries in the United States, people with similar backgrounds to me. Right. Um, so I worked in Asia for some time, um, and I worked with extremely, extremely poor people. Um, didn't look like me and didn't speak my language in a place where I was the minority, the person who stuck out like a sore thumb and didn't fit in. And if you go on a short trip, you don't feel it. If you go there to live, you start to feel it. You start to right. feel it needs to be different all the time. Right, and right. Yeah. Whether you're treated great or whether you're treated poorly, it's just always that you're treated differently. And right. you're never an insider. You're never an insider. And it just builds up on you. And so some of that perspective, I think, has really helped me as I've come back to the United States. Mm. Uh, but I, I experienced some frustrations um, in Western missions as I was, right. I was trying to work through some, some really basic, some basic things. Um, right. um, one of the things that bothered me was the fact that I would come in contact with national partners uh, who were believers like me. But for some reason, when it came to things like money and helping, the rules were different for me and for them. And specifically, even though I came from a well-funded place with a well-funded organization, I, 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 my hands were tied by my organization to share money with my national partners. And right. constantly I was directed by the people supervising me back to the historical problems with sharing money. And I kind of scratched my head at that and thought, you know, that might have been true 100 years ago or 200 years ago. I don't know. But right. as I look at my brother here, uh, right across from me, I see somebody who's highly educated, who's very intelligent. And it would be ridiculous for me to think that I have some corner on, on the, the market for how money should be handled. And this brother doesn't. In fact, most of the people I knew that I worked with and that I loved overseas they were far better better at handling their resources than me. Right. I had to support myself in a lot of the environments that I saw there with what they had. I would die. I would not make it. So yeah. I had like tremendous respect. And so I felt like it was strange that being from the West and being from a Western missions standpoint, I wasn't allowed to share my resources because I might harm them. It didn't make any sense. It just, it didn't practically make sense. Right. So what, what grew out of that was a pretty big frustration uh, where I felt like I wasn't allowed to support my national partners the way they should be. And I felt like we weren't treating them fairly. And right. so I entered into some doctoral work. I wanted to write about it. Yes. And I presented that to my Western seminary. The first response I got was, well, you can't give people, you can't give money to foreign partners. It'll ruin them. And right. I said, no, no, that's just an assumption. That's not proven. But I, I, re I received a lot of resistance over and over, huh. over again. And so for years, as I went through my doctoral work, I kept asking, can I write about this? Can I write about this? Right. And then one day my dissertation supervisor said, you know, you've really got me thinking about this. And I went to a conference where I heard a man named Michael Badriaki speak. Right. And I think maybe you've got something here. Oh. 
And Michael, I got a copy of your book immediately. I didn't know it existed at that point. And I read the whole thing and I thought, yeah, this is, this is what I needed. This is what I needed to hear. Um, wow. So that's, that's how we got connected. I think you wrote a book wow. where yeah. you said things that nobody else was saying that mm. really scratched the itch that I had, which is things just ain't right. Things ain't fair. And we're being inefficient in the way we're running missions. So um, that started our dialogue. And I think in response to your book, I wrote a big fat dissertation um, <laughs> that, in fact, was in part dedicated to you for what. Wow, you wow. So, uh, yeah, you're in my dedication here. And. Uh, wow. So I couldn't be more grateful for just the, the catalyst that you were to get me to think even more differently about things. And so, Michael, I felt like as we've had these talks, we've both said we should just record these things because other people in the church, they could be blessed by it. So I wrote down something. It may have been in our last talk. It may have been the talk before, but um, I wrote down that a little bit about your story with your parents. And I don't know if it was the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, but right, you mentioned right. an experience that just right. to be typified some of the actual harm that can be caused yeah. when we don't do things right. And so can you right. tell a little bit about that story? Yeah. So I, I hope, uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 <laughs> You know, I, I, I know how we met and um, I'm always moved. I'm always moved by, by that reality, Matt, because, and thank you for sharing it, because um, the likelihood that you and I would even be seated here, that you and I would uh, meet at, at this crossroads of the minds and hearts and souls, um, with our vast, uh, you know, varying experiences and come together, you know, I, you, you're a brother, you're, you're, you, uh, you have encouraged me in ways you don't know in our conversations uh, because we live in a world, unfortunately, where the likes of you and me are not supposed to, we're, this is not supposed to happen. But this is, it's this, yours and my, yours and my friendship and brotherhood totally appends this in rather practical, empirical ways, but also in uh, metaphysical ways. And so you, and you and I then start to understand that import from a place of gratitude to a God out there who somehow implanted in you and I the great news of the love of God through the gospel. And when we unpack that through scripture in Ephesians 4, you and I are brothers. Yes, absolutely. Somehow met by way of dissertation and all that and uh, 
and 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 and, and ideas. And because even I, when I was writing, all I, I was all when I was writing, I was in the very exact same space of frustration as you are. I had never written a book. I had never, you know, I had never thought about ideas at that level. But I was pushed to, by just the the sheer gap, the way I got to know about um, the the problem I, I was seeking to address, and the people who actually introduced me to that, it came at very unlikely moments. So, and because that story is for another day, but. Thank you very much, uh, Martin. Uh, it it uh, moves me deeply. So the, the story you have touched on about my family in Uganda was a case where my dad, uh, who, you know, for all purposes, we as, as his kids really looked up to him because he was the sole breadwinner. And he had some kind of education in account, you know, accounts and you know, clerking and basically business uh, for that matter. Um, and he grew up in a very, very difficult times. I mean, unimaginable. So for him to be able to provide the life he did for us at the time, in right in the middle of Kampala in the city, because that's where really we were raised. And so for us to, for you, for any family to have that experience at the time, that means you had means. That means you had opportunity. That means you 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 were able to uh, to sustain a family economically. And we went to good schools. Uh, my mother was able to start because she's an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur herself, she was able to start her her bakery in the kitchen. With once with the regular cooking stove, and brought it because she had the skills, and she taught us how to make bread as well. So we we're making bread with her, and she so basically saw the bread go from one stove into selling it into the market and into some hotels, and bringing back the cash. So we we this was our family context. Quite exciting, I think, for young life as we were. But then at some point, Uganda was going through the process of restructuring based on structure adjustment programs. It's, they're called the SAP, SAP programs. I mean, any economist would know this, any uh, person who's read about uh, these sort of uh, uh, broader uh, international foreign policy and uh, political economy interventions would know what this is. So that uh, uh, countries like Uganda, uh, you know, were being asked to sort of uh, liquidate and get rid of uh, the, the governments in our countries, get get rid of any, uh, you know, holdings in, in private enterprise. And so what, what that led us to is, uh, you know, I, I remember here listening, reading the work of a Kenyan journalist who one day uh, actually put a framework to it because I was trying to understand what was going on. And he, he called my dad's, my mom and dad's generation, including his, because we were not too far in age. He said that was called the IMF generation. 
So there's such a thing as the IMF generation. Now, what, what I've, because of now reading extensively and understanding, I realized that the characteristics of the IMF generation, uh, one of the major ones was mass layoffs. Because back in the 90s, we started experiencing, based on these structure adjustment uh, 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 ideas, uh, a lot of our parents were laid off in masses. And I think that was going on. I've talked to my friends who are uh, working on their doctoral studies uh, in international development. And we we come to the, we, it's like when we're talking about those times, they've told me, oh, that was happening in China as well. I said, oh, so you too? I said, yeah. So, you know, the IMF generation is kind of spread across what were called, uh, you know, low income, uh, are called low income economies of course china is now uh taken off to a different uh, uh status but it was kind of going around uh the sort of two-thirds world if if uh, you know for lack of, of a better term or the third world uh latia more is uh is, is uh, you know in french and then the so so our parents characteristically were the, were hit by this mass layoffs and then for the first time in, 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 our, in my life, I was a young kid going to primary school, I learned of the word retrenchment. Retrenchment it was, is basically another word for being made redundant or being laid off. And so I went to school one morning, I, I went to, you know, after go, my dad went to work that day, he came back and it was like somebody had died in the hall when we came back from school. You know, I still feel emotion of it. Uh, and to see a dad of who we thought was strong, you know, was very gregarious, totally deflated. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember this, and because now this is, you know, ask Africans who have lived through Af uh, 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 abject poverty. We'll we know, we, we know the story beyond its intellectualized rationalities. It, 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 we, <laughs> I mean, it seems like somebody who's alive but looks like they're dying or they're dead because they've lost the job. Because now, be, uh, uh, being in that spot of a father, now I realize that he was afraid. He was now afraid. All of the dreams, not just his, of his children, the dreams he had for his, everything had died. And sooner or later, we started dropping out of school. I write about that in my book, When Helping Us. We started dropping out of school, and these were good schools. And when you lose the opportunity to go to school in low-income countries, low-income economies, because really education is I, I now why I'm so passionate about education and particularly quality education, is that honestly it takes you out of poverty. You can walk out of poverty. You can embrace personal responsibility and embrace the journey of hardship, misfortune fortune that is in this world it in buddhism say life is in buddhism they say life is suffering and 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 right but 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 even jesus said in this life you will have trouble you suffering is there in this life you'll have trouble but be of good cheer that's kind of why i went with i i find this plausible in christianity because jesus kind of sort of completed it for me 
This suffering walloped us, man. <laughs> it just took it. It walloped. It was like a flood. It was like a tsunami. Oof. And as a young child, uh, stung by abject poverty, you know, this is why uh, caring for the poor for me, uh, I, I, you know, I love both the rich and the poor. I don't worry about the rich because they're not poor in that sense economically. But I worry about those who are poor because the people underneath this label of the poor are children. Yeah. Matt, children, children. I was that kid. And Michael, I just want to make sure I understand. So the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, intervenes in Uganda when you're a kid. They introduce a lot of policies, and those policies are supposed to be designed to bring people out of poverty. But the impact they had on you was your dad lost his job. You had to drop out of school. Um, the exact opposite of what those policies, those IMF policies were designed to do. Right. And, and so, yeah, those, they sort of, they were designed, these policies were designed with the ideas of increasing, you know, local resources, you know, kind of like what you see Brian trying to do. Uh, or at least, you know, uh, or, uh, I guess for, for those who are hearing, but this idea of let's go and make sure that uh, local resources are being uh, used. Well, they were being used, right? My dad, so my dad is, right, let's, let's sort of use the is sort of a syllogism, the syllogism. L local resources are those being used by locals. My father was a local. Therefore, he was already using the local resources of employment. And, and right? I think this is bringing out it, one of the reasons that, that we, we came together in this is just yeah. the fact that we both have a fairly in-depth knowledge of some of the major um, books and research out there that go into how you best share resources between rich and poor. And what we've seen overwhelmingly through organizations, big organizations like the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the UN, um, what we see is often a one-size-fits-all policy. And these policies are created by people that are not local insiders. And so right. what happens is great intentions turn into disaster when these things are implemented because there is no insider knowledge Instead, it's money given with strings attached. And those right. strings destroy lives, oftentimes, even though they have the best intentions. Um, right. Which is, I think, exactly what you talked about with your own experience there. And that you're using local resources by local people growing a business. And then because of a foreign policy that's well-funded, yeah. you end up dropping out of school. Um, right. It's... It's, it's a right. sad story that I think is repeated over and over again. Um, and, and yeah, we want to know and, how and, to change and, it. <laughs> right. Right. And, in, and this idea of encouraging local invest, local investments uh, by restricting external in, imports, these are all part of economic policies. Part of the global economy market and the Western economies 
have been playing this sort of game for a very long time. They, you know, they're truly these kinds of econo economic, economic and economist experts, right? So the idea is that they were going to, what's ironic though about this, it sounds plausible that, uh, and, and kind of sort of, uh, it, it has a, a, a puritanical morality with it. Or we are going to make sure that they are really using their local resources. There's the assumption is that they're not. I don't know the metric, but but when you ask people like my dad and my mom and many other, it's always it, to me it's so it's 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 a sort of uh, ethnocentric paternalistic approach because you 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 undermine what's already happening, and uh, under the guise ironically of trying to make sure. Uh, it's well, it's very ironic trying to make sure that they are they are at work, but they are ready to work. So, so it, it's, it seems like as we as as I've read different secular writers and then bridging the gap over into Christian writers about poverty alleviation, you see some similarities in that it seems to be there's a fairly um, widely held view that most answers to local problems come from local people. But the question is, how do you elicit those answers? And how do you fund the solutions? And right. it seems like the Western view on that overwhelmingly, at least on the Christian side of things has been, well, it takes Western knowledge and Western supervision and Western strings attached in order to right. accomplish what we need to accomplish. And yet in practice, it does not appear to work. Um, right. So it, it, it has been, I think, a frustration to both of us. You mentioned Brian, and I think you're talking about Brian Fickert with uh, right. Helping Hertz. And we both right. read that book, and we both have some, have some pretty large disagreements with some of the strategy of that book. But at the yeah. end of the day, uh, we know that as you and I now sit, both of us in different places in the United States, that we have access to wealth that people in other parts of the country don't, or of the world don't have, but right. we don't necessarily have access to the solutions. So how do we right. get our wealth to the people that have the solutions in the way that makes sense? And, and my gut feeling, my heart feeling is everything that I do, everything that I see, everything that I am in life is informed by the gospel of Jesus. And right. when I look at how did the early church deal with this situation, they right. didn't see boundaries. They didn't see lines. If they saw right. need within the brotherhood, they gave. And they gave right. until it hurt. They didn't right. give with strings attached. They gave with love and brotherhood. Right. And then as they looked out to the world outside the brotherhood, they did a couple of things. Number one, they looked to the unsaved people and said, we want to be so attractive that these folks outside our communion will come in, that they'll be right. attracted. And the right. other thing that we did over centuries and centuries is we said, if we see a need, we as the people of Jesus, as we see a need, we need to go out and meet it because that's consistent with our identity in Jesus Christ, because that's what Jesus did. And so our sharing mechanisms can't be these things where we impose our will and our rules on a different culture when we don't even have the solutions ourselves. There's got to be something better. Right. 
No, you're absolutely right, Matt. And I, <laughs> you know, I and I know we're going to do some follow-ups here, but I think it's important. Just from, uh, I think it's this this forum is so important because you know, for he 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 to your point, uh, it being grounded on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is fundamentally a. Uh, 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 the, the, an incarnational and translate incarnational and translational uh, um, philosophy of, of of transporting this eternal love to those who were already hurt by sin, totally separated from God, as you know, Isaiah says, your sins have separated you from God, and that the gospel generously comes to us through love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten only begotten son the world he didn't even say those that are not hurting and those that are already hurt and those the world which world by 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 principle the gospel is coming the one that's totally broken totally broken and and and, and broken at the core we're not even talking just the lack of money human speaking, human wise speaking, and that the gospel came to us, we ha didn't have to pay. We didn't have to have strings attached in that sense. We didn't have to uh, uh, get, he didn't, he didn't get, have to get us to sign a consent form or, uh, 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 or, uh, or, or non-disclosure or whatever. It came to us because of love that whosoever believes shall not perish, but have everlasting life and then have it abundantly later on. Uh, 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 the Gospels will say in John 10, 10. Now, when the church is applying this generosity of the Gospel to your point, there were no boundaries. I think what's really, uh, again, I'm, I'm reticent of the word hurt and harm because those have been thrown around. Oh, we're doing more harm than good. Oh, but the, the, the problem is that the arbiters of those of, of the nature of harm and hurt are still Western, uh, are still Western ideas that have been used universalized. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and they don't really apply in other contexts. And so, so you can see that now these boundaries are being drawn in a way that the church, early church, did not do that. They didn't go to see who is worthy of help and who is not. But 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 I think as we as we continue to have this discussion on how we, as people who believe in the gospel, are going to look at this differently, we really need to unpack these other, for lack of a better term, secular and, and foreign ideas that are really grounded in nation-state politics of economics that we have somehow now taken and applied applied to how the church enacts the gospel i think that's the problem you know i, th I think that's the problem where it's 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 a problem of really ideas that might work in the uh, political political economical realm but we have confused them with uh, uh, biblical generosity here. So, so, so he, let me just, just to put a little bit of, and then you come in, just to put a little bit of touch on it, back to my story the, and the IMF generation, you know, one of the 
principles in the structural adjustment program was what was called import substitution industrialization, ISI. And, and what this, 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 this theory, it was a theory. What this theory uh, meant was the theory, it's a theory of economics that typically adhered, is adhered to by developed countries like the United States at the time, or emerging, emerging markets, just like China, uh, India, you know, Brazil, all these emerging markets uh, uh, in, in the world economy. Uh, this, that, that's used by emerging markets and nations that are seeking to decrease this idea of dependence uh, on developed countries, right? So, 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 so this is an old, it is not new. This is an old uh, theory that uh, political economists have been trying out on countries. But when you look at the countries in which they have used these policies, it hasn't worked. What happened was that we, the commoners, we lost, we lost our livelihood. My parent, like my parents, we, we fell through the cracks. We, 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 I, I, I was out of school for quite a while. I was what was called a high school dropout. And Matt, in economies that are struggling, when you lose the, 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 the chance to education, the opportunity to education, is really, really devastating. So, so that uh, uh, the way I start to get back to go to school was actually the opposite of this ISI approach, because those policies require national debating within politicians and what tariffs they're going to put in place. By the time all of that is settled, there's corruption, there's all that stuff. The local person like me who wants to go to school is still stuck in, in, in my, you know, my, my dad's still looking for a job and losing time. And so what happens is the way I started to get back to school was that my friends, my dad started going to his friends to see whether they could help. My dad wasn't able to uh, to get it all and uh, to get it all together, so so he he needed help. I guess I thought said that as young as I was, I started going to talk to my relatives, right, to see whether I could get some help to get back to school. They too were paying tuition for their other for their children because when you live in those economies, whether you have resources, because you know Brian assumes that his solution was to go to very poor people and start to extract the little they had, but they're already spending it. These people, when you're poor, you leave, or it used to be a dollar a day, then it went to, uh, uh, then it went to $2, now it's back to $1.90 or less, right, for the poor. Now, for, for me, I remember actually living on less than a dollar. There was a time I lived on 75 cents. Can you imagine that? Can an American live by that? So for, 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 for anyone to come and say, Michael, can you, can you take some of that? I, it, it's not even able to buy me two meals a day. So anyways, uh, the way I start to get back to school on, onto the on-ramp to opportunity was finally through gathering as much help. And then one of my now very good friends who came from the United States, and this is not a narrative that's saying 
or wait for the white man. No. No, because now we're talking a sort of a secular critique. What actually was happening was that by God's grace, he somehow had our prayers because we're praying. My parents were praying for me to get back to school. I have got to think that God had those prayers somehow. And by his mercies, it happened to be a brother who was coming from the United States, not knowing what he was really going to be there for. And I deliberately did not share with him my story because I did not want him to think that I was going to, I was, I, I was, that we were friends for benefits in that sense, in the sense of fi financial economy, because I also resented, I resented any kind of notion that I could be looked down on because I'm in need. Because all I needed to do was to go to school. I didn't tell him. He's, he's around. He could even come on a podcast with me. He and, and, and he was a businessman. I didn't even know he was a businessman. I did not know that he had resources as much as he did. But somehow through the vine, he went and found, you know, Michael is an intelligent young man. He has so many skills. He's helped me out a lot here, even just navigating my way here. How come he's not in school? And he was told that I'm not in school because I couldn't afford. At that time, parents paid. Now there's universal education. So there's some resources for people to go to school. Still has problems. We can that's a discussion for another time. But at, by that time, that was my situation. And then he was he was really devastated. He said, Michael, why didn't you tell me? And I said, Well, I do not want you to think that I you and I were friends because you know, um, so so I so I could extract resources from you too. It's a, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of my situation. I would rather deal with the levels of shame at an individual level than, because that's just the nature of, of, of being poor. When you lack resources, it's not just a relational thing. You are dealing with shame. Poverty is not as a result of, of relationships. No, it's not. Actually, that's wrong. You know, poverty has many causes. Mine was because I did not have money to go to school. You know, you can have good friendships and still be rich. You can still have good friendships and be poor. Sure. So, so, so the idea that poverty is as a result of relationships, as Brian says to me, it, it, it again is problematic because so what? You have good relationships, therefore you have wealth, therefore God is pleased with you. To me, that seems like the gospel of prosperity logic. And then if you're poor, you are poor, therefore you have bad relationships and therefore you have a bad relationship with God as well. And God's not pleased with you. Uh, so I think the danger there, my, he might not be trying to say that, but that's the danger. So for me, what got me back was actually the generosity of people because at that point, my friend uh, from, uh, you know, I call him Kevin in the book, he went, you know, two days. He said, you know, I'm going to pray about it. And he went, just spent time praying um, because, you know, he was that kind of a guy. And I uh, came back uh, two days. We met. I remember the place we met there in Kampala. And he had money in an envelope. He said, I'm giving you this money. I don't usually do this, but I'm giving you this money uh, uh, because, one, I love you. 
uh, your, your, your brother to me, what's mine is yours at least to many, in many ways. He said, but you're, and then Michael, you're very talented. You, 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 oh, I says, look at you just, you've helped me out a lot too. And he said, if I don't give you this money so you can go back to school, you need to go back to school. You, you have a future. And, and I said, yeah, that's what my parents have always been telling me. That's what they've been investing in. It's just unfortunate that the, that, that misfortune came to our door. And he said, well, let's try to do something here. He said, here's some money you can you know, top up with what uh, others have been giving. And that's how I got back into school, right? So, but it took both local and foreign investment. <laughs> it really took both. I mean, so where is that paradigm? Where this is, is that such, paradigm? This is such a great picture. Um, when I think about back to, okay, and we'll probably talk about this over the coming months and years, but um, this idea in the New Testament where you have uh, Peter in the, in the church in Jerusalem, and they're going through some tough times. Misfortune was at their door. Um, right. They had a famine, um, and they were literally on the brink of starvation. Yeah. And Paul goes to the churches that he's planted, churches that he has connection with, and he starts raising money. Right. And uh, what he does then is he takes that money, and he gives it to the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Right. He doesn't say hey peter here's the list of 50 different things you need to do and if you do these things you can actually figure out how there's food in jerusalem that you can use right no he doesn't do that he doesn't say find your own resources he says we're going to share with you because you're our brothers and that was across economic that was across cultural barriers they, they, right. they were there were all kinds of geopolitical lines then that they were crossing to do this and it, it, right. it didn't it didn't somehow bifurcate people with wealth and people without it. It didn't shame anyone. It was brotherhood. It was brotherhood. And it was a yes. mixture of people from different places giving out of their abundance. And I think we've gotten a crazy idea in the Western church of what this idea of stewardship actually means. Stewardship right. does not mean padding your retirement account. And it doesn't mean spending $30 million for your children's wing of your church. What it means is taking what God gave you and leveraging it to the max for his glory. And yes. what that means for people with a lot of money is that they need to take that money and they need to share it. That's good stewardship. Good stewardship is not holding or withholding. It is sharing. And you want to leverage that for all it's worth. Um, and so... Preach, preach Matt. Yeah, you go have, ahead. You, you've mentioned um, Brian Fickert again and uh, yeah. his Chalmers Center. Yeah. They, they somewhat represent one of the prevalent ideas in Western Christian giving right now, which, which right. says, hey, poor people, the, the reason they're remaining poor is really they don't know how to manage or identify their own assets. Right. And so right. really what the Western experts need to do is take their Western expertise and go everywhere else and train right. these poor people how right. they can find their own resources. And I think that sounds really good until yeah. you actually try and apply it or live it out or talk to anyone who was not born in the United States. Exactly. Exactly. 
And so what I see in that is I see a, a really marred idea of what it means to be a good steward. Right. Because from somebody looking at the outside of that system, like you did in your book, Michael, you scratch your head and say, wait a second, you're trying to help people by not helping them. How does that make sense? You're exhibiting good stewardship by withholding. That seems to be the exact opposite of what I read in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the exact opposite of what I saw in the first century church. And it doesn't make sense for us. So then we got to turn and say, okay, well, if that's broken and it's not right, then what's a better way? You know, that's the question. How do I take people in my church who have a very big desire to help and give and do whatever they can, just engage however they can. But how do I give them a mechanism to share with maybe a church in Uganda who has need without, without causing shame? Without causing some type of power trip where my church and those people are going to impose their will. How do do we eliminate that? And I think that uh, Jaya Kumar Christian in in his book um, writes about how the the gospel is the equalizer to eliminate inequitable power dynamics. Right. And so if we're believing the gospel and believing that we're all equal in Christ then maybe the things that we bring to the table can be buffered with a huge amount of humility right? and with a lot of trust. And, you know, that that's where I'm coming from in this. Like, things need to change. And if the prevailing system is the system that's being pushed by places like the Chalmers Center, and if that's right. what our Western churches are doing, I think what we're doing is w- missing a window of opportunity the United States will always will not always be a powerhouse of wealth, but for right yes. now, right now we still are, yeah. and so is yeah. the church. The church may be right. waning in the West, but right now the one thing that we have more than churches anywhere around the world is we have money. We do not have a corner on the gospel. We do not have right. a corner on theology. Our right. our systematic theology is not superior. It's none yes. of that. What we have right. is money. And if right. we withhold that, we are being bad right. stewards, not good stewards. I totally agree. I mean, I totally agree. I, and so I I, I I, totally agree. And I think uh, in many ways, you know, I, the problem is very clear. The problem to me is very clear. Um, it, it, it's, it, it, Paul wrote about it, you know, in foresight, foretelling there in Revelations about the church in Laodicea. He says they are rich, they are too comfortable, they are exactly what, you know, they're too, well, when you look at all those kinds of things Paul is naming, if you were now to look at it retrospectively, this is a, this, I, I, I now know it, and you now know, and you've said very eloquently here, Whoever acts like it's not the case, that's what the epitome of self-deception is. When a church lives in an economy of over $16 trillion, that I guess it's more now. Um, you know, the, 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 the church's uh, uh, sort of net worth in America 
is in hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars and unbecoming. <laughs> I was reading, I was reading um, of a, a pastor whose congregation was paying uh, him in tithe through fruit, giving him fruit. You know that still happens in certain uh, uh, third world economies. So that this inequitable, I mean, inequality is such a thing. It's a real thing. It has no, it has no uh, uh, a home only in the on the left and the right. Whatever those spectrums are, inequality is such a thing. Everyone on the conservative side, liberal side, they they talk about it. And you've you, you've mentioned it here. So that it is time for the church. I think the church is always a little bit too late to uh, uh, understand that the gospel, like you say, which on which we're predicated on, the gospel that we're predicated on that really breaks all these boundaries that we are raising. Paul says these dividing walls have been broken across socioeconomic, across race, across culture, right? Even though race was not necessarily a, a, a category that was discussed then. But you see with Peter, in Galatians 2, when he, when he was behaving exactly like some of us are behaving today, where he, he chose to be very exclusive ethnically, and that he was excluding others from resources, even of learning the gospel, because Paul said, I, you know, I, he, he talks of how he came, he presented the gospel to them, and that he preached among Gentiles. He said, Peter, I did the opposite. I didn't do, I didn't withhold resources from them of hearing the gospel. And later on, you'll see that he calls, he tells them, remember the poor. In that very same conversation, remember the poor. Because what, segregate, what a segregative approach that is based on barriers today that were not there in the early church, is that they not only hold resources materially, they hold this gospel-infused uh, relationality of which I write in the book where, you know, one bishop said there in the conference at Edinburgh, give us friends, the, the bishop from India, that this idea of a friend that sticks closer than a brother is being impeded by this foreign approach to resource management including a gospel. And so I think, you're, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right, Matt. And I think that the, your question, how do we, I think this is why this kind of discussion is going to be here for a while. And I hope at some point we can garner resources to have the space to think about the how, the what, because now we're getting to the academic side of it. And perhaps hopefully people like Brian Fickett, Stephen Corbett, can come out of their silos because you and I have been talking about this, but you know it's as though it's a, it's a, you know it's as though I wonder what's going on. Uh, it's as though people now realize that maybe when helping works is faulty, but they still don't want to turn around so that we can have this koinonia-based dialogue because we are here for we are here because of the love of God. Now that he loved us first, but we love him back. We love this idea of a people who are being transformed, the church, and not just the church, or because this dichotomy and dualistic approach to the church life of the local church only in America. 
and therefore the international church is not tied again it's still very segregated yes. so i mean we're trying we're trying to say can we do everything to keep the unity just like paul wrote in ephesians i mean i mean and I, and I think for anybody who might be listening to this, especially pastors or, or elders or deacons in a church, if you want to try and do some self-diagnosis for are, are we falling into one of these categories or these, these pitfalls that we're talking about here, just think about the current international relationships you have in your church and think about whether your current engagement strategy has an exit strategy does it have an exit strategy do you have written down somewhere in your file your notes your contract whatever you have is there an exit strategy strategy in there if you have created an exit strategy for your ministry i would say that you're not thinking of your your partnerships as brotherhood you're thinking of them as a business and right. there is no exit right. strategy for brotherhood right I, if my brother asks me for money I will give him money without strings attached, but I don't give him a three-year window with an exit strategy. I don't think about, well, wait a second. What about when I need to get out of this? I don't think yes. about that. I think about my love and my relational connection with him and my mandate that God's given me. I don't think about exit strategy. So if you look at the ministries that you have overseas and you say, well, we have a three-year partnership with this church in India. And in those three years, here's the 10 things that they're going to do. And here's the 10 things we're going to do. And then on the rear end of this, we'll be done and we'll shake hands and go our separate ways. I would say that you have set yourself up for a failure when it comes to true koinonia in brotherhood, because you're not right. treating each other as brothers and sisters. You're treating each other as business partners. Exactly. That's not who we are. We are not right. business partners. We right. are brothers. And if right. we're going to operate as brothers and sisters, we need to think about it fundamentally differently. Distrust, it reigns in business relationships. Now, dysfunction can reign in families, but right. there's a deeper love. There's a deeper belief. And what binds us together as Christians is the gospel. We have the same right. Holy Spirit in us. We study the same scripture, even though it may be in different languages. And we believe in the same Jesus. And because right. of that, we have a relationship where we share resources and we're called to share resources and we also have a mission. Right. And so I think when I look at when I look at some of the secular things that have been done and then how that's been translated into organization like Brian, Brian Fickert's Chalmers Center, it really right. bothers me that we seem to be repeating a lot of the same mistakes that we've made in the past and we're just labeling them different things. But at exactly. the end of the day, what these systems look like is new ways to explain why it's okay for us to withhold our resources while at right. the same time impose our will. Right. So in practical application, what that means is someone like Brian Ficker might come into a Ugandan community. Right. He might say, well, what I think you need here is I think you need a microfinance program. And right. so then what he is going to do is he's going to organize his own group of local individuals who he's going to try and elicit participation from. Right. And then out of that, he's going to help them discover for themselves how they need this microfinance program that he's already decided they need. And right. then he's going to help them to figure out how they can fund it themselves. And right. what he's going to do in the process is 
oftentimes run right over the local established systems and programs that are in place, including right. the local church who wasn't right. even invited as a core participant in the group. Now, sometimes they are, but it's only if the church will dance to the tune of the Western expert. And that's the right. problem. Um, exactly. And go ahead, Mike. And, 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 and well said. Well said because it's, it's so interesting because he thought in, in his work, he thought that by giving her $8 for life-saving medicine, because he, he claims that she had HIV AIDS. And so the, 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 what he thought, because this is the other problem, is his idea of hurt is generalized and quite ambiguous. I wonder how... For you as a trial lawyer, if I, and, and of course you don't try these kinds of cases, but I wonder how on your end you would adjudicate a case like a missionary hurt, a grandmother unemployed who lost her job. By the way, she lost her job because she quit that practice of sorcery to come to Christ. So she's unemployed. Amidst the, what, the church, what churches in Uganda usually do is to help people like her get on her feet. And they, they would have done that. So I don't know why he didn't consider that. But, the, the, but, but here's the point is, I wonder how you would handle, how would you handle a case between a missionary who had an elderly unemployed black woman in Africa by giving her eight dollars for life-saving medicines, what crime did he commit? From a legal perspective, I'm, I'm interested in your legal mind. Because help me, it puzzles me. What crime did he commit? So, uh, and, and Michael, here you're referring to the part of of Fickert's book where he, I think it's in the introduction of his book actually, where he talks about um, a person that he gave eight dollars to or a few dollars because they needed um, some life-saving medicine. In Uganda. And yeah. later, Fickert said he had done the wrong thing by helping because yeah. really he shouldn't have introduced the use of his own resources. He should have gone back and found some church in Uganda that would then, he should have encouraged them to help her. So basically, what he would have done is what he should have done is instead of stopping to help, he should have just walked on past and let her die. And right. I, I, when I read that, I was just, I was just befuddled that he could write something like that and not realize the way that looks. But I, yeah. I think legally, I, it's, a hard, it's hard for me to not just go back to the Good Samaritan and, and say, what character are we playing here in this yeah. parable of the Good Samaritan? And how has it been turned on its ear that yeah. we are we now Christian responsibility means you're the person that's passes to the other side of the street and walks by and turns your head the other direction. That's the right thing to do. It right? doesn't make any sense. It completely subverts the yeah. Samaritan. So in a situation where um, we would have some foreign missionary who, who, who fails to embrace something like that when they could help, to me, it's, right. it's so appalling. It just makes my stomach hurt. Now, I know that in the places where I've been, I can't help everybody. But, yeah. you know, you saw Jesus walk through these crowds and the people that came to him, the people that asked him, he engaged with them. He healed them right. and he diagnosed 
what they needed and, and they gave it to him. That, that is the heart of the gospel. And so whatever the system is that we've somehow created in our fear of creating dependency combined with our, our idea that the Western idea of maybe how to fix poverty or just the Western idea of even theology is so much superior to anywhere else is we've created some systems that almost look like the pharisaical systems where, you know, when the Pharisees, you know, they have this rule that they're supposed to help their families, but if they declare their wealth Corbin and dedicated to God, then they don't have to help their families anymore. They can keep their money for themselves. So somehow the Pharisees turned a rule about helping their families into a rule about how it was okay not to help their families. And it seems like the same thing here. It is a, it is a, it's a, it's just a marring of what Jesus tells us about who we are and what we're called to do. Um, so Michael, I, yeah, so great. Um, I'm going to, I think we probably want to bring it to a conclusion for right now. So I want to just take a take a minute or two here. And if you have any concluding remarks for this time, just go ahead and lay them out there. Right. So I, I, I'm very appreciative of this because I just have been, you know, this is cathartic to me, uh, Matt, because I've been carrying a lot of uh, thoughts about this and uh, a lot of pastors who have been forced by white missionaries in Uganda, and I'm sorry to use the terms, the racial t- uh, uh, categories, they, uh, they're very limiting, but to me, they're, 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 again, they're not, I don't subscribe to them as metaphysical, but that's what we use here in the United States. But, uh, you know, white missionaries coming and really chalking Brian Fickett and Stephen Corbett, but Brian Fickett says he's the main pri- primary author, so I'll use Brian, choking this book down their throats. A lot of these guys and, and women don't even have background in international development. They don't have background in economics. They're just simple uh, pastors who believe the gospel and they're trying to do the work. And, and a lot of them are quite shocked at the message of, uh, uh, of sort of this white missionary victimhood that now they're the ones who are being hurt, that now they're the ones who are being hurt and they're in, in the process of them being hurt, they are also now the patrons who are trying to protect, you know, these poor African or even, you know, black Africans from hurt. So it's quite a very di- disturbing uh, 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 impact that this work is having. And so for me, this is quite cathodic. Uh, so that's one. Um, and I'd like to con- continue the discussion. But to, to, to your point, even Paul in uh, Galatians 2, he talks about how there were, you know, the sort of false teachers coming in uh, with a different kind of gospel. I hope uh, my fear is that this doesn't get to that that extreme. You know, this is this is an old discussion from you know Thomas Chalmers. That's why the Chalmers Center is named after Chalmers. But then people like Brian Ma pick up with that. All this this kind of theories that are really grounded in secular political economic theories. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Brian at one conference said his book are basically footnotes from Brian Ma's work. So I hope that we can get the opportunity to have a continued dialogue about getting back to embracing the, 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 the margins. And, you know, Jesus was on the margin. Jesus was on the margins. The gospel was on the margins for a lot of these uh, uh, pharisaical, Greco-Roman, uh, uh, you know, non-Christological entities. And that's what got him crucified. So embracing, coming back to the central piece of the gospel, the cross, and how that equalizes us. 
because at the bottom of this discussion, we must also unpack the racial implications of this work. Here's the last point. That Lady Grace, who Fikert laments he had, he was more obsessed about her practice of sorcery that he even continued to call her a witch doctor after she had given her life to Christ, that he denigrated, he denigrated this African elderly lady who had embraced Christ. And in his book, he doesn't celebrate her coming to the Lord, which is a big deal. Even scripture says when one gets saved, I thought that was the, I thought that was the coming coming homecoming party of of the god of of evangelism and discipleship but 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 he doesn't even highlight that sort of a, a, a in the subtext or or she got saved but i had her he focused see see how the sort of white missionary victim evangelical victimology is, is creeping in i don't know i don't understand it I, I thought we're supposed to celebrate that he has a sister who has come to know the lord so Matt, there's, uh, uh, I hope we can do some more food for thought and, uh, and continue to unpack this. But thank you for this opportunity. It's great. Absolutely. And thank you, Michael. As I listen to you talk, you know, I just continue to think of new things and, and new items to dialogue on. Having been someone who has kind of gone through the secular education system, you know, and gotten a doctorate there and then, and then gone through the, the Western theological system and gotten a doctorate there and then, um, and then have lived overseas. Um, I see some real holes in the way we educate pastors and missionaries in the West. Right, right. I, I agree. I ever heard the term stereotype, stereotype threat was when I read your book. I, mm. I, oh. I had lived overseas. You know, I had been mm. trained in several different mission organizations. Um, I had heard the terms bias and stigma offhand. I'd never heard the term stereotype threat at all. And I know it's a fairly recently coined term, but um, mm -hmm. the, what concerns me there is when we uh, purport to be experts and yet there's a huge gap in our education, it can lead to huge problems, misunderstandings, mistakes when we're not being sensitive to the things that really make a difference. Um, I can think it's not for today, but I can think of all types of stories of mistakes that I personally made overseas right. just because I didn't, I wasn't prepared correctly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm frustrated with that. I don't want that for other people. And, you know, I'm frustrated for Fickert and company that they've produced this yeah. thing that I think has some huge blindness in it as to the way other people think and live that are not right. us. And so I, I feel like if we can continue to have these dialogues and really bring in some people that are, are outside the West voices, hopefully, of different experiences they've had and maybe things that work, maybe this can be constructive. We don't want to just tear down an existing right. system. We want, to, we want to see a system in place that actually honors the gospel. And the thing that has really irritated me, I think, as I've researched a lot of this is that. A figured system is just one system, but it seems like a lot of the Christian systems of giving have taken the UN and the International Monetary Fund and the work done at MIT and their poverty alleviation lab, and, and they've just taken that and put Christian labels on it. Right. And, and, you know, some of that stuff works. It's the brightest maybe the brightest minds in the world, but some of it really doesn't work. But the problem is it really goes far past 
our identity as Christians, when we talk about Christians engaging in poverty, we have some right. built-in things that were built not by us, but by God. I mean, the church, we have the church, and the church is made to function as a poverty alleviation engine. So when we talk about koinonia in the church, that's not just my local church here in the middle of Missouri. That is right. the big church with all of us. Right. We already have right. a system in the Bible to share and right. alleviate poverty. And I don't see that system when I read the Christian poverty alleviation experts. I'm not seeing that system. I'm seeing a secular system that has Christian labels. And I say, right. have we forgotten who we are? I, I think, Matt, we, uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm, because I'm always very hopeful, uh, uh, you know, it was said of Abraham that he hoped against hope. I, 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 because of, look at how we came together. I, I really believe that you and I and uh, the many that uh, uh, we are going to be able to join and lock arms with, I hope, including Fickett and Stephen Corbett, uh, we can come together and innovatively work towards, uh, you know, sort of a, 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 I mean, it's it's too grand to think, I don't want to go there, but to, to sort of have a Nicaea moment, right? And mm -hmm. come back to this center of the gospel and how the gospel helps us help faithfully. I mean, perfectionism, what is that? What are we trying to do? <laughs> you know, it, it really, it's really about being faithful. Well done, good, well done, good and pleasing servant. I think that's what we want to hear, that we want to be faithful, well, uh, do well to do good. Yes. As an enactment of the gospel. So I really believe the how is there. I really believe that we can... With all this, the, your, your gifted background, your amazing background, your wife, his talents, and, 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 and all these resources, if we can pull them together, I really believe we can put our best foot forward. And I think it's on our generation. The time is here for us to contribute, to add. And, um, uh, you know, and it requires this back and forth, the, the, the dialogue, the debate. I think what we have lost now uh, as opposed to really uh, uh, this sort of claiming a victim status, Let, let's let's embrace let's embrace this hope in in this world you'll have troubles, but be of good cheer and overcome. How how do we keep going that way uh, in, in that Jesus dictum? I I have hope, Mark, and thank you again. Well, I, I'm going to finish it with this. I yeah. have read so much about the fear of creating dependence yeah. um, in Western writing about missions work yeah. and about poverty alleviation. Yeah. And yet when I look in scripture, I see a collection of churches and a collection of believers that were yeah. vibrantly, vibrantly interdependent. Yeah. I do not see churches that were independent. I do not see believers that were independent. Yeah. Vibrant interdependency. Right is good not bad right, right. somehow dependency yeah. has turned into being a synonymous term with subsidy right and it has a black eye and right. i think that if we want to look at what our target is we want yeah. vibrantly interdependent 
brotherhood and sisterhood. I'm going to leave it with that, Michael. We'll see. Until the next time, and it has been a pleasure.